While the Earth settled into its layers, it was still repeatedly struck by rocky bodies and planetesimals, which still prevented a proper crust from forming. By now, most of the worlds of the solar system had been in their usual places around the Sun. However, there was one aspect missing from this arrangement. Earth lacked its moon. All the planets, save for Mercury and Venus, have moons. These natural satellites have a wide range of unique features, including volcanoes and liquid oceans. Earth's moon is remarkably different. For example, compared to its host planet, the moon is very big, nearly a quarter the size of the Earth. Samples of lunar soil and rocks brought back from the Apollo missions show a marked distinction in composition from the Earth. While the Earth's surface includes the elements hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, and sulfur, there are no such traces on the moon. Instead, there are heavier amounts of titanium and chromium. The way that these elements present themselves suggests that they had a violent origin, born of a superheated explosion. The moon's insignificant core also seems to lack iron, something which our core is known for. What makes these observations so interesting is that in all the years of exploration and analysis of the other planets, we have learned that their moons share a lot of elements with their hosts, as if they developed from the leftover remains of their planet's formation. That means that the origin of our moon is different compared to that of all the other planets. At the very least, the amount of oxygen in the moon's soil suggests that it developed in the same place and at the same distance from the sun, and the oldest rocks have been dated to 4.51 billion years ago, after the formation of the Earth. So where did it come from? The most widely accepted model for the formation of the moon was that a large planet, or planets, collided into the early Earth. We recognize that the planets were continuously struck by planetesimals during their formation, so this idea is not too bizarre. It postulates that the object that hit Earth would have to be about the size of Mars. It had to have smacked into Earth at such an angle and speed as to mix the two bodies together, just enough not to outright obliterate themselves. There would have been an abundance of material that flew outwards from the collision and these particles would have ended up caught in the Earth's gravitational pull. Over time, the ring of material orbited around the planet and the remaining parts would have accreted together into their own body. Following that, the moon was born, and the Earth now had a natural satellite. The impact would have forever changed the Earth's future history. The collision may explain why the Earth has an axial tilt of 23 degrees. Similarly, other planets in our solar system have strange axial tilts. Uranus, for example, appears to have been tipped on its side, almost at a 90 degree angle. No doubt this was caused by another collision event. The mixing of the bodies altered the outer surface of the Earth, and for thousands of years the planet was enclosed by a magma ocean that was heated and maintained by yet more impacts from remaining planetesimals. The moon itself underwent changes in its early years. The lack of an atmosphere or tectonic activity allowed for any and all craters gained to remain mostly unaltered. The moon also had areas of volcanic activity for a time too, and there were lava flows that spilled out onto its surface later cooling and forming the dark gray Maria that give us our man on the moon. The Earth in those days was a terrifying place. Because the moon formed so close to the Earth, about 15,000 miles away, the days lasted a few hours, and it took the moon about three days to go around the Earth. Over time, as the moon orbited the Earth, the days grew longer. We figured this out because years of observations have shown that the moon moves about one and a half inches away from the Earth every year. This is not in the slightest a significant amount of movement, so don't worry, it's not enough to cause any alarm that we'll wake up one day without a moon. As a result of its movement, the moon has had an increasingly weaker gravitational pull on the Earth throughout its entire history. 
It's the moon that causes the tides, pushing and pulling the Earth's oceans in a continuous cycle. In the days before liquid water on the surface, the magma ocean of the young Earth had to have experienced some very large tides due to the moon's close proximity. Estimates indicate tidal pulls may have caused parts of the magma to rise over a mile upwards. This constant motion would have certainly generated a lot of energy, and still kept the Earth from being anything other than molten hot. Eventually, as the moon moved further and further away, the tidal action decreased in intensity, and at some point, the surface was able to finally cool and solidify into a stable crust. This crust would have composed mostly of basalt, which is a rock that forms from cooling lava. The mantle, meanwhile, cooled too, and great growths of the crystals peridotite and olivine formed into the crust, furthering this cooling process. There are three other aspects of Earth's features that needed to be in place before the establishment of living things, and they all were developed soon after the cooling of the Earth. In the time before the proposed collision of Earth by an outside body, the planet did have a sort of atmosphere. There wasn't much to see, just a cloud of hydrogen and helium as the planetesimal grew. Because the magnetic field hadn't formed yet, there wasn't anything to keep this blanket safe, and it wasn't long before solar winds blew it all away into space. After the formation of the moon, a second atmosphere formed. There was a greater abundance of elements this time around, plenty of methane, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, ammonia, sulfur, and water vapor. These would have been outgassed from the planet, that is, released by volcanoes, perhaps by the billions daily. Oxygen was notably missing, however, as most of the Earth's oxygen would either have been trapped within the rocks, or had been combined with other elements to form new substances. The creation of the oceans was tied to the cooling of the Earth. No longer bound by the intense heat of the magma ocean, the water vapor in the atmosphere could now precipitate towards the surface. It rained liquid water, possibly as early as 4.4 billion years ago. Additional water even found its way into Earth via the impacts of comets, which are partly ice. There would have been ponds at first, followed by lakes, and finally the first oceans. No longer would the crust of the Earth be barren and featureless, as rivers and lakes carved into the rock. Gusts of winds would have blown the surface of the waters, creating waves that beat the shores. For the first time, erosion could play a hand at shaping the land. For example, the endless crashing of waves against the rocks continuously chipped and smoothed them into grain-sized pieces. Sand. There was plenty of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, as previously mentioned, and this would have been contained within the oceans, making them very acidic at first. Quantities of iron, calcium, and sodium would later find their way into the waters of the world, and would have helped the acidity neutralize. It was then that our oceans became salty, though the concentration of salt within the oceans would have been at much greater amounts. In all this activity, the crust strengthened and solidified even more. Water could seep into cracks in the ground and encounter the heated magma beneath, releasing quantities of steam, which further cooled the planet. We now have a significant amount of evidence from this period of the Earth's formation, including the earliest minerals and rocks, and the start of the geologic record. The oldest minerals are zircons, and geologists have discovered some in West Australian rocks as old as 4.4 billion years. These zircons are very small and have particular oxygen signatures that reveal their underwater origins. That tells us that Earth's oceans had to have been that old, otherwise those zircons wouldn't have formed. For comparison, the oldest rocks are Acosta Nice, which have been found in northwest and eastern Canada. Dated to as old as 4.03 billion years, these deposits are the remains of some of the only surviving continental crust from the young Earth left. 
There are other areas around the world with similar, albeit younger, formations that have provided historical geologists with an account of the first continents. While I've mentioned that our planet developed a solid crust about 4.4 billion years ago, there's an important distinction to make between oceanic crust and continental crust. The crust underneath the ocean, called mafic, is distinguished from exposed crust beyond the waters, called felsic, by the composition of its rocks. Mafic crusts tend to be rich in magnesium and iron elements, while felsic crusts contain more quartz, field spars, and muscovite. When geologists examine various samples of billion-year-old rocks, they can tell where it formed based upon the existence or absence of these elements. From the rock record, we know that oceanic crust developed first, and continental crust later. But what triggered the production of continental crust from oceanic crust? That lies in the development of the third important aspect of Earth, plate tectonics. We sometimes take it for granted that Earth's crust is broken up into different plates, and that these plates are slowly moving and reshaping the land. We have earthquakes when two plates move and release a ton of energy, creating that characteristic shaking. Based on geologic sites from southwest Greenland, it seems that the process of plate tectonics kick-started before 3.8 billion years ago, quite a while after the formation of the crust. What seems to have occurred prior to this was that parts of the oceanic crust would sink below into the mantle, pulling the surrounding crust and liquid water inwards. Deep in the earth, this basaltic rock was reheated, melted, and solidified. As a result of this process, the material developed into a new form of rock, with a large amount of water, as well as bits of silicon minerals. These became the first granite deposits, which would thus rise up and float over the oceanic crust, because granite is less dense than basalt, and therefore lighter. More granite would have formed and pushed higher and higher until chains of volcanic islands were made. As the islands grew larger, becoming proto-continents, if you will, they pushed against each other and occasionally pulled more parts of the granite crust underneath them. Mountains and valleys formed and were crushed or pulled apart. The islands expanded and they eventually developed into the true continents. Of course, these would not have been the continents we know today. The lands of the world have gone through continuous changes since their origin, and the map of the world was completely different and unrecognizable until relatively recently in Earth's history. Geologists have made reconstructions of how the early continents may have looked, based on the measured rates and directions of movement, as well as the comparisons of rock formations around the world. In one instance of this, historical geologists have proposed that one of the earliest continents was a landmass called Valbara, based upon comparisons and dating of rocks from southwest Australia and South Africa. The oldest rocks that make up these formations date to 3.6 billion years ago, so the continent would have been that old. In time, Volbara would split apart or collide with other parts of the crust, and the history of the continents could officially begin. And with that, we must lay anchor to our river journey. In the next episode, the origin and evolution of life will be discussed. The process of abiogenesis is riddled with mysteries, but, just like the discourse on the formation of the solar system and of the moon, we have loads of observations, experiments, and discoveries that have shed light on just how the first living things could have come to be. That's the end of this episode of On the River of History. If you enjoyed listening in and are interested in hearing more, you can visit my website at www.mixcloud.com forward slash river of history. A transcript of today's episode is available for the hearing impaired or for those who just want to read along. The link is in the description. And if you like what I do, you're welcome to stop by my Twitter, at KillDearCheer. You can also support this podcast by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash jtermel, 
Any and all donations are greatly appreciated and will help continue this podcast. Thank you all for listening, and never forget, the story of the world is your story too.